and looking at it. I believe this is our fifth week in the study of Jude, because we really wanted to take our time and really delve into the meat of this book. Please understand, once again, the main context of this goes back to verse 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend for the faith. As we said back in our introduction, we're supposed to contend for the faith, not necessarily defend the faith. There is an aspect of apologetics, and we have mentioned that. But here it is, this idea of going out and fighting, agonizing for the faith, and going out and representing Jesus Christ in all we say and all we do. So we want to encourage you to contend. Why do we need to contend? Verse 4, certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness, and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. False teachers, apostates, the word means falling away. These false teachers, these apostates, creep into the church. And next thing you know, this false teaching is that they're supposed to fight against. So, he gives multiple examples that we've been working through. And he gave the example of Egypt in verse 5, the angels in verse 6, Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. And then we talked about Michael, they're battling Moses, excuse me, battling uh, the Satan for the body of Moses last week in verse 9. Now, we're up to verse 11. And I was listening to a teaching this week by Chuck Misler, and he talked about how verse 11 is the key verse in the book of Jude. And it really is when you stop and you look at it. Look at everything before verse 11. Verse 11 is we're going to pick up here tonight. But in verse 11, you have all this history. You have Egypt 5, Angel 6, Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7. And the next thing you know, verse 14, you're starting to get into prophecy. So we have the historical idea of false teachers and apostasy, and then we go into the prophecy part of it. We also see this supernatural Going on in verse 9, Michael the archangel fighting with the devil for the body of Moses, but then it gets into the natural, 12 and 13. So we go from supernatural to natural. You see corporate problems. I, excuse me, Israel back in verse 5, angels back in verse 6, Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. These are groups of people that fell away. And now verse 11, we talk about individuals that are falling away. You can see how the book just changes a little bit here in verse 11. Please note a couple things. These guys are not in, in historical order. It does not go Cain, Balaam, and Korah. If you're going to put this in historical order, you'd go Cain, Korah, Balaam. Why is that? Just look at the wording there. Way of Cain, error of Balaam, rebellion of Korah. That's the way apostasy works. You get the wrong way, you get into error, and it leads to rebellion. So those three words are important. Way, error, rebellion. You get off the wrong way, and next thing you know, you're in error, and then you're into rebellion. Please note all ways of life are represented here. Cain was a farmer. Balaam was a prophet. Uh, Kor was a Levite. So you have all different ways of life. Once again, you see the theme of they had spiritual responsibility with spiritual privilege. If you go back to verse 5, Israel had this wonderful privilege and responsibility with the Lord. So did the angels in verse 6. So did Sodom and Gomorrah in 7. And they all fell away. Well, these three had wonderful spiritual privilege. Two talked with God personally. One served in the tabernacle, and they still all fell away. That's what takes us now to verse 11, and we're going to talk about Cain, Balaam, and Korah, and hopefully 12 and 13. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on Balaam and Korah, since we just did the study in Numbers a couple months ago. We're going to spend a lot of time on Cain. Now, let's talk about what we know about Cain. Most of the time when we think of Cain, we think of Cain killing Abel. That's what we think about Please remember a couple things about Cain. Cain, number one, was a believer. Cain was a believer in God. Cain was not an atheist. He talked with God. Number two, Cain was trying. He was coming to present a sacrifice. He was actually putting effort into this and trying. 
So when we represent Cain sometimes, we represent him as this ungodly person. This guy spoke with God, and when he spoke with God, he acted like it was no big deal. So he had a relationship with God in some ways that it's hard for us to grasp. And once again, please remember, he was trying to bring a sacrifice. So what went wrong? Let's go back and find out. Genesis 4, please. Let's get into a study on Cain. What does it mean to go the way of Cain? You guys remember the story. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve fall. They're kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Then in Genesis 4, they have children, and they have uh, Abel and Cain. Just for a fun little note, some people think Cain and Abel were twins. And the way we get that is take a look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again. Look at, the, look at the wording there. There's nothing about it. And she conceived again. Some people believe that Cain and Abel were twins. This time his brother Abel. Now Abel was the keeper of the sheep, but Cain was the tiller of the ground. Okay, so we got a farmer and we got a shepherd. Pretty straightforward here. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground of the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock of the fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Now we need to start breaking these words down. Some of your translations, instead of saying respect, it says accept. Some of it says look with favor. What did that look like? We don't know. What did it mean for God to respect and accept his offering? Did fire come down from heaven? I don't know. We don't know exactly, but there was some visible way that it was shown that Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain was not. Now, there's some type of system already set up here. I want to make sure you guys know this and understand this here. They knew what was supposed to happen. And to kind of back this up a little bit so that way you don't think I'm just making this up a little bit, I'm going to throw some verses at you here and you can kind of follow along. Please remember when Noah got on the ark, and you guys know this because you're Wednesday nighters, Noah did not just take two of every animal. Genesis 7, verse 2. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, and a male and his female. Also, seven each of the birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of the earth. Noah knew what was clean and unclean. Now, the law is not given to hundreds of years later. But Noah knew what was clean and unclean. Please remember that. Please also remember that when they got off the ark, the sacrifices they offered, Genesis 8.20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took up every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. That sounds very lawish. Okay, but once again, you've got to remember, you are hundreds of years away from, from Moses getting the law. So Moses, excuse me, Noah had an understanding of clean and unclean. Noah had an understanding of building altars and offering sacrifices. And that is something that is in the book of Genesis, and you even see it in Exodus. If you remember correctly, when Moses came to Pharaoh, he said, I want to take the people into the wilderness so they can offer sacrifices. The law hadn't been given yet, but there was an understanding of what was supposed to be done. So now I bring this point up to say this. It looks like Cain probably knew to an extent what was supposed to be brought. He brought the food of the field. Abel brought the shepherd, the lamb, which we'll get into that a little bit more. Please also know this. I believe fully that Adam was maybe the wisest man up there with Solomon that maybe ever lived. He was created in the image of God. We got to get moved past this, this elementary school mindset of these cavemen walking around grunting and groaning. Noah built the ark. These guys were vastly intelligent. 
And Adam, created of God in the perfect image of God, why do we think he walked around mumbling, carrying a club? This man was very wise, I assume. And this man also had deep understanding of the Lord. And so therefore, I believe that we can make a case here biblically that this concept of clean, unclean sacrifices for sin, etc., was passed down orally. But then when it came to the law with Moses, it was then then taken care of in a written type of form, because I think we can see that in the book of Genesis and also in the book of Exodus as well. There's a desire to offer sacrifices before the law came. So I do believe Cain had an understanding of what was accepted. Now this goes a little deeper then. He was a farmer. Abel was a shepherd. What do shepherds do? Shepherds raise sheep. Why do you raise sheep? We raise sheep for wool. We raise sheep to eat them. Now, I grew up on a farm. We had sheep. You don't eat sheep. It's not a good meat to eat. What you eat is what? Lamb. A leg of lamb is good. I remember telling somebody one time that we grew up on a farm, and I can remember eating lamb, and they were just aghast. You ate lamb. Yeah, it was really good. If you've never had lamb before, it's good. Move past the idea of the cute little lamb and just eat it. It's really good. But the point is this. Abel is raising sheep. Why is Abel raising sheep? Well, to eat, right? No. They weren't eating meat at this time. And let me back that up with Scripture. Genesis 1.29. God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed to you shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. That's Genesis 1, 29 and 30. It looks like they were vegetarians. And to back this up a little further, when Noah gets off the ark in Genesis 9, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, and on on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving, living thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. It looks like after the flood, they were now allowed to start eating meat. And I think you can make a strong case for that. So if that point is true, Abel is a shepherd to raise sheep to do what? Maybe just get wool? Or maybe there was an understanding that as a shepherd, you're raising sheep to sacrifice. Because this was something that they knew and that they understood. I think there's a lot of depth here going on in Genesis 4 that we need to look into. Okay, so what exactly did Cain do wrong? I mean, he's listed as as one of these apostates in Jude. And here he is in verse 5. God did not respect Cain and his offering. Verse 5, and Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Well, aren't you glad? I love it when the Bible just answers the question for us. What did Cain do wrong? There's two verses that tell us exactly what Cain did wrong. If you note, take or write them down. Hebrews 11, verse 4. Hebrews 11, 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it being dead still speaks. So the first thing we see in Hebrews, Abel's sacrifice was better than Cain's because it was offered in faith. So that's the first thing you see. Abel offered a sacrifice in faith. And then 1 John 3.12, 1 John 3.12 goes deeper. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. So the two reasons that Cain, the sacrifice was not offered, is one, it was not offered in faith, verse 4 of Hebrews 11. And number two, verse 12, it was a wicked work. These wicked works that he did. 
What did he do that was so wrong? I mean, why is the fruit of the field, this, this, this grain, so much worse than this idea of a lamb? The, the easy response is that most people just say is this, is that Cain represented works and, and Abel represented faith and grace through the death of the lamb. And, and that's a pretty simple, straightforward answer, and I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. Cain worked for his stuff. Cain planted his stuff. He, he got the weeds out of it. He harvested it. He put a lot of sweat into his stuff. And he brought it and offered it to God. Abel did what? Well, Abel didn't birth the sheep. Abel didn't nurse the sheep. Abel just brought the sheep. And there's a wonderful picture of salvation by grace and faith alone. But I think it even goes a little bit deeper there. Because it talks about how Cain's sacrifice did not have faith And there was an evilness associated with it. And you start seeing something now that is a religious thing that isn't deep. Tie this back in now to Jude. You're seeing false teachers that are doing what? Religious things that aren't deep, that aren't relying on the Lamb and the grace and mercy of Christ and just the death of the Lamb. Do you see this? What else did Cain do that was so evil? Let's follow the story. Verse 5, And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. I want to show you a couple things here first. Verse 6, God shows concern. Why are you angry? Please note that. What else do you see in verse 7? You see an admonishment. If you do well, will you not be accepted? I don't think God's unfair in any way whatsoever. If you do well, Cain, that means Cain knew what doing well was. If God came to me and said, James, I'm judging you. Why? Because you didn't do what I asked you to do. Well, what did you ask me to do? I'm not telling you. That's just unfair. Have you ever tried that parenting trick with your kids? Where they did something they shouldn't have done, and you're like, unless you make that right, you can't have this or that. And they're like, what did I do wrong? Well, you know. And the kids are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've had my boys come up to me and say, what did I do wrong that mom says I did? I said, I don't know, just make something up. I don't know, just go do it. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Meaning, Cain, you know what you're supposed to do. So he shows concern in verse 6. He is admonished in verse 7. This shows concern. And then he's telling him, you go do good. But then we get to verse 8. Now Cain talked with Abel as a brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain arose up against Abel's brother and killed him. NIV and NLT read it a little differently. They say one day Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And when they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother and Abel killed him. Carries the idea of, hey, premeditated. I've had enough of this. I don't want to infer into the scriptures. It's just a frustration. If I sweat, I bleed, I cut my hands on the thorns to get the most beautiful, perfect fruit and grain that you've ever seen. I lay mine on the altar and there is nothing. You, you watch a lamb being born. You watch the mom take care of the lamb. You just bring a lamb and next thing you know it's getting toasted and roasted by fire from heaven. That doesn't seem very fair. This is built up. Please note once again the relationship between the Lord and Cain. Verse 9, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Isn't it fascinating? It is not a big deal for Cain to talk to God. I I want you to to, to realize that. That's the relationship he had. It was not like he hit his knees and he heard God's voice thunder and say, Oh, Lord of Almighty, who are you? No, he said, 
I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? This is some of the most sacrilegious talk you'll ever see to God in the entire Bible. That somebody almost, I don't know. I mean, it's like going up to your kid and saying, what'd you do? Mm, let's get a shoulder shrug. That's what Cain's doing to the creator of the universe. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength. You have fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. He now starts whining. This is too much. Someone's going to track me down. Someone's going to kill me. Someone's going to do this. Please remember, Hebrews, no faith. Please remember, 1 John 3, evil works. And if you follow his descendants in verses 16 on, it is a rough group of people that come out of the line of Cain. Cain is quite the example of apostasy falling away. He had first hand knowledge of creation. Little four-year-old Cain talking to mom and dad. Where's everybody else? It's just us. What do you mean it's just us? No, you don't get it. It's just us. We are the first people ever created. Once again, let me repeat just a couple points, not to be repetitious. He spoke with God. God spoke with him. I believe that Cain had an understanding of the system. I believe Cain knew what was expected of him. I believe we can make a biblical case for that. That's why Cain is mentioned as such an apostate falling away because of the spiritual privilege and responsibility he had. If you remember correctly, when Solomon started falling away from the faith, one of the things that God said in, in the history books of the Bible, he says, I talked to him, I appeared to him twice. God says, wasn't that enough, basically? I showed up, Solomon, to you twice, and you still chose to fall away. Great privilege, great responsibility. Cain fell away, and that's why he's an example of apostasy here in the book of Jude. I wanted to spend a lot of time on him. Any quick questions, comments about Cain and why he is mentioned in the way of Cain uh, before we move on to uh, Balaam and Korah? We good? Okay. So, we've talked about the way of Cain. What about the error of Balaam? We're not going to spend a lot of time on Balaam. Uh, If you like this, if you're watching online or if you weren't with us, I believe I went back and I looked May 27th, I believe is when we started our study on Balaam. And I think we did two weeks on Balaam when we went through the book of Numbers. So if you're looking at something a little deeper, um, that was only a few months ago. I thought about going back and re-hitting a lot of it. And I thought, no, we just taught on that a a few months ago. So May 27th is when we hit Balaam. I am going to hit a couple of the high points here. Most of the time when we think of Balaam, we think of the first thing of Balaam is what? The talking donkey. That's the first thing we think about talking donkey. I always found it fascinating. Do you ever realize that Balaam later on is killed? The Israelites come and attack, and uh, they kill the group of people that Balaam's with, and it goes through all the list of the uh, stuff that they took, the prize from battle, and it lists how many donkeys they took from that battle. Do you realize that one person got a talking donkey? Do you ever think about that? Somebody got a talking donkey as a prize from that battle. I just want to throw that out there. So, this is what I find fascinating about Balaam. Balaam takes center stage in the Bible for four chapters. Numbers 22, 23, 24, and 25. He is mentioned in 56 verses in the Bible. He is mentioned, if you're keeping track, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Nehemiah, Micah, 2 Peter, Jude, and Revelation. Eight books of the Bible mention Balaam. He is a strange character. 
He has a, a depth with God. He spoke with God and acted like it was no big deal. Yet there wasn't the relationship with God. See, you see this apostate. You see this falling away that we're talking about. The great, great privilege they have. But there's no responsibility with it. He knew he was wrong. He knew he was on the wrong side. And he didn't care. Why did he not care? Because we get some hints in the Bible. Let's talk about those. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to mention the verses to you to keep the ball moving tonight. 2 Peter 2.15 talks about the way of Balaam. And it says that he loved the wages of unrighteousness. If you'd wave a $20 bill in front of Balaam, you could probably get him to do whatever you want him to do. He loved it. Jude 11 talked about the error of Balaam, and it comes right out in Jude 11, and it talks about the idea here of profit, greed. And then in Revelation 2.14, the doctrine of Balaam, which taught sexual morality and idols. What do you see in most apostates? Most apostates I see, people falling away, you see a greed. Jesus isn't enough for them. There's not a contentment with Christ. They want more. Maybe they want someone else's spouse. Maybe they want more money from work. Maybe they want more power, prestige. I don't know. You see an immorality in them, just like Balaam. They're willing to compromise their belief system because they're going to get what they want. And you see idols. And you may say, okay, what do you mean by idols? Please remember, an idol is anything that gets in the way between you and the Lord or how you make your own image of God. They want the power. They want the prestige. They want the glory. That becomes an idol to them. And that's what you see with Balaam. Remember, Balaam couldn't curse Israel. He could only bless them. And he was so greedy for his money. He was so, so something of wanting that, that, that payment that when he could not fulfill his end of the contract, we know the Bible says that he came back later and took these women. And he said to these women, he says, listen, you're going to go into the Israelite camp here because here's the deal. I can't curse them. So you're going to send your pretty Moabite girls over. And as you send your pretty Moabite girls over, guess what? Those Jewish boys are going to like those Moabite girls. And those boys are going to compromise their entire belief system to get those pretty Moabite girls. And next thing you know, we'll bring Israel down, not through cursing, we'll bring Israel down through sexual morality and idolatry from the inside. Numbers 31 says this, These women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the instant pure, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Balaam counseled these guys to say, send the women over, use sexual morality, bring down Israel from the inside. This is why he is that apostate false teacher. He is greedy. He'll do any unrighteous act for money. He'll teach sexual morality. He'll teach idolatry. And he will compromise anything to get the paycheck, to get the glory, to get the idols, to get anything like that. That's why Balaam is such a danger. And we still see Balaam's today. They will do anything for money. They will use the name of the Lord to get whatever they can. They will use the name of the Lord in sexual morality. They'll use the name of the Lord to build up their own kingdom of power and prestige and glory. I remember one time reading an online, I wish I would have printed it out, because the more I think about it, and the more I think about what was said, it almost just sounds fake. But it was this, this pastor write-up. And I always find it fascinating to read a pastor write-up. I just do find it fascinating. And it started out with his, his, his little bio on the website was, Powerful Man of God. I thought, okay, that's the guy I want to read about then. I keep thinking back to John the Baptist. I must decrease, he must increase. And it's always fascinating when I look at these pastor bios, the pre-posed pictures of them, and how great they look. I remember one time watching a pastor, 
He's kind of a rough guy in the sense of just apostasy. And I remember, he just looks so good. I mean, it just looks movie star perfect. But what happened to the message? And so what happens is it becomes this idea of the way of Balaam, the heir of Balaam, the doctrine of Balaam, the greed, the immorality, the idolatry. It's a danger. Balaam had quite the privilege and responsibility, and he failed in it. Talked to God himself, but was willing to compromise anything. And you see that in the false teachings, that we will compromise to get what we want, how we want, in any way that we can to do it. Any quick questions about Balaam here before we go on? All right. We're up to Korah now. Verse 11. And perished in the rebellion of Korah. Please note the logic again. They're not in historical order, but it goes the way of Cain, error of Balaam, rebellion of Korah. You get off the path the wrong way. Next thing you know, you're in error. Next thing you know, you are just in rebellion. Can you go with me to number 16? We're not going to spend a lot of time on Korah as well because we just talked through numbers once again before this. And plus, if you've been with us on Sunday mornings, uh, a lot of the psalms that we're in are from the sons of Korah. So we've been mentioning him a lot. Number 16, please. So what do we see with Cain? We see this idea of works, not faith. What do we see with Balaam? We see the idea of greed. What do we see with the idea of Korah? There's a discontentment. Please remember, Korah is a Levite. That means Korah gets to serve at the tabernacle at this time. He doesn't get to do the priestly duties, but he gets to serve very close. It says in verse 1 of number 16, Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Koath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abram, the sons of Elab, and On, the son of Pela, sons of Reuben, took men. You may say, why is all that in there? It wants to make sure you know that first off, he's a Levite. So he has privilege to go serve at the tabernacle. Next, he's of the son of Kohath. That means he's the one that gets to go near the articles inside. That's a pretty privileged position. Now, he's not a priest, but he's a Levite. Verse 2, they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. So he gets this little group of 250 guys around, and he says this, 3, they gathered together against Moses, Aaron, and said to them, you take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Boy, talk about a false teaching. You take too much upon yourselves, all the congregation is holy. We can all talk to God. We can all serve at the temple. We can all. Do you realize? Then just think about this for a second. Let, let's, let's just put Christianity, and I mean true biblical Christianity, on the same level of, of false cults. Let's put true Christianity on the same table as let's go with uh, the Mormons. Let's go with the Jehovah Witnesses. Let's just look at those three. Those come to my mind. Let's say they were all made up, or you had to choose which one was made up. Do you realize true Christianity is the one that says, hey, guess what? Your default position is you're going to hell. Because you are evil, bad, and you deserve judgment. And it's only by the grace of God that you have access to heaven through his death on the cross. Now, what human being would start their own religion with the default position being hell? That's like saying, I'm going to design a game where you're automatically going to lose. Go to the other ones now. Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, false cults. What do they do? They twist it around. They start adding ideas like soul sleep. 
or annihilation where people just cease to exist. They take the concept of hell out completely or second chance salvation. See, now that sounds like a man-made religion. Everybody gets in. Every, everybody gets in. And look at what's going through the world today. Listen, listen. We're just trying to all get to the same goal. So you call your God Jehovah. We call our God Allah. You call your God this. But it's basically all the same thing. Is that not verse 3? All the congregation is holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Let's take out the name Jesus and just say, God just loves us all. He just, he just loves us all. See, Korah was using this because he wanted power. Everybody should be allowed to go into the temple. Everybody should have this access to talking to God. What does Moses do? Verse 4, so when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. That's actually a good response. He spoke to Korah and all his company saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show us who is his and who is holy and will cause him to come near to him. That one whom he chooses, he will cause to come near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah, and all your company. Remember, only the priests were supposed to do that. Put fire in them and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord chooses is the Holy One. You take too much upon yourselves, you sons of Levi. See, he's right there. He's warning them. You take too much, you sons of Levi. You're not a descendant of Aaron. You do not have the priesthood. Eight. Uh, sorry, nine. Is it a small thing to you that God of Israel separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the work of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation and serve them? And all that he has brought you near to himself, you and all your brethren, the sons of Levi with you, and now you are seeking the priesthood also? Korah, isn't it enough? You're a Levite. You have access to things that love and other tribes don't get to do. You get to see things, hear things, be a part of things, but the problem is the apostate, the falling away, is you always want more. More power, more authority, more everything. More. More of it all. You're not content with your position. The greed literally swallows him up. If you remember correctly what happens, the earth opens up and takes him down, and I think it's interesting, the Bible says, takes them down alive alive. Jump ahead, if you will, real quick to verse 31, same chapter. Now it came to pass as he finished speaking all these words that the ground split apart under them and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah with all their goods. So they and all those who were with them went down alive into the pit and the earth closed over them and they perished from among the assembly. Guys, that's crazy. The earth just opens. They just go down. That's how God is dealing with apostates here. See, the rest got burned up with fire. What can we find out from this? The way of Cain? I didn't do that. The way of Cain? Works, not faith. The heir of Balaam? The greed? And the rebellion of Korah? Not content. That is what false teaching and apostates look like. They always want more. They've twisted the doctrine of it. And there's going to be a constant discontentment. Once again, I want more followers. I want more money. I want more prestige. I want more attention. I want more. And if time would permit, it would be great to go once again to John the Baptist where he says, I must decrease, he must increase. The goal is to keep pointing people towards Jesus. Three individual examples of apostasy. We've had three group examples of Egypt, of Israel coming out of Egypt, the angels in Sodom and Gomorrah. Now we've had three individuals, and now he gives us some natural examples as well. 12 and 13 will go quick, but real quick, does anybody got any quick questions, comments about um, Cain, Balaam, or Korah before we go on? 
Alrighty. Let's remind ourselves of 12. These, these false teachers, are spots in your love feast. Oh, they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. There are clouds without water, carried about by the winds. Late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. Wandering stars from whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now he uses natural examples to explain to us false teaching. The first one, love feasts, agape feasts. What we can piece together is the early church liked to get together and eat. They got together and just... Fellowship. And when I say fellowship, I mean the biblical definition of fellowship. I'm not trying to make a deeper point here, really. So often now we consider fellowship what? Christians just get in the same room and we just talk like the world talks. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Fellowship is the idea of the focus is on Jesus and what he's doing and just the, the love feast of let's get together and just celebrate knowing Christ and celebrate each other. These guys having these love feasts at this time would have actually known Christ. Do you remember when he just kept reproducing those fish? Do you remember? He was 12 baskets left over. And Jude, who's probably the brother of Jesus. Can you imagine at these love feasts? Some say, Jude, tell us, tell us another story of Jesus as a teenager. What was it like playing hide-and-go-seek with him? He found me every time. You know what I mean? It's just this thing. This, this idea of these love feasts. Now, the problem is these, these false teachers, these apostates, they, they come into the feast and they serve only themselves. Now, that may be literal, so if you go read in Corinthians, Paul talks about these love feasts that got out of hand and people were coming in and turning into a drunken party. They were just gorging on food. It's like having a potluck and they run up first. They just fill their plate up so nothing left. So maybe that's a practical thing, but you also see another sign of apostasy. It's a selfishness. Serving only themselves. And I find it absolutely fascinating. That word for serving can also be translated shepherding only themselves. What does that mean? They only want to be their own pastor. Remember, we talked about this a a couple weeks ago. That one of the signs of apostasy is they don't like authority over them. Verse 8, reject authority. They don't like any spiritual responsibility. They're the ones getting the message from God. They're the ones that have all the insights and everything. They're the ones with the special connection. And you see that in verse 12. They're shepherding only themselves. I have noticed this in my 20 years of being a pastor. When you run into somebody who's a false teacher, they come into the church... They try to get their own little click Bible study going. If that doesn't work, they'll usually pull away. They'll try other different churches. And eventually they end up just being in their home by themselves trying to get their own thing going. Because they're the only ones that know truth, speak truth, understand truth. What are they doing? Verse 12, serving only themselves, shepherding only themselves. They are spots. They are blemishes. Some translations, literally they are rocks. Why rocks? Because if you're out on a ship, it's the hidden rocks that are going to cause you problems. Not the rocks that come out of the water. It's those ones underneath the water. And that's what these guys are. Please go back to verse 4. They crept in unnoticed. They're hidden rocks that destroy ships. Look at the other examples here. And I love these examples. Clouds without water carried about by the winds. Oh, I get to talk about some of my favorite things. My my favorite thing is, is the Bible. I love the Bible. But I love astronomy and I love weather. And I get to do both of those. Clouds without water carried about by the winds. What is the purpose of the cloud? The cloud carries water to do what? To rain. To bring refreshment. To give you a water supply. To feed, to, excuse me, to water your crops. 
Imagine this summer when we had no rain and all of a sudden the sky becomes black, the wind picks up and these storm clouds come and you get the wind and the thunder and the lightning but not a single drop of rain. That's false teaching. You looked good, you sounded good, but you gave me no refreshment. I know some teachers that by golly they put on a good show. They look good, they sound good, but there's no spiritual refreshing. One of the things that happens out west, and and they're called a dry thunderstorm, is it's so hot sometimes out in the desert that there's a lightning danger because the storm comes, the rain starts to fall, it is so hot in the upper part that the rain evaporates before it hits the ground, but guess what? You still get the lightning. And you realize how much of a danger that is in a dry, barren area to get lightning that could start a lot of fires, but no rain with it. And it's a dry thunderstorm that happens out west. The rain evaporates before it hits the ground through the heat, and you just get the lightning. That's the false teaching. Sound good, look good, but there's no refreshment. There's no truth. There's no doctrine. Think about some of these very, very famous pastors. And just listen to what they're saying. They speak in little quotes and quips and memes and sayings. But where's the depth? Clouds without water, carried about by the winds. Late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Boy, what a picture. Late autumn trees. We're into late autumn here. There should be fruit on the trees. That's the purpose of it. But there is no fruit. Twice dead. And that can mean a lot of different things. It means completely dead. It's dead with fruit and it's dead in the roots. One teacher I was listening to made a very beautiful case that he was saying twice dead. That carries the idea that you're dead on this earth, but you're also dead spiritually. Because if you talk about being dead going into eternity, pulled up by the roots, your own root system, which is supposed to nourish you and give you, is pulled up. You have no foundation. You have no roots. You have no fruit. It makes me think back to Matthew 7 about these false teachers that Jesus warned us about. Where's their fruit? Raging waves of the sea foaming up their own uh, shame. The sea, destructive. But if you've ever been to the sea, the waves and the action, there's so much activity, but it's destructive. Same thing with false teachers. Oh my goodness, there's a lot of activity. They'll talk about every place they've been and where they're traveling around and everything they're doing and they'll talk about every single person they're healing and witnessing and everything like this. Wait a second. It looks like it's just a lot of raging waves and foam. It's destructive. Wandering stars from whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Wandering stars. This is going to carry the idea of either comets or meteorites. Stars have a very set pattern. Constellations. You can judge things off the stars. If you show me the night sky, I could tell you what season we're in because the stars are that way. You go out this evening, if you look, there's two bright lights right over there, and that's Jupiter and Saturn. There's a certain pattern to them. But you get wandering stars. Uh, This summer, back in July, if I remember correctly, there was a a comet. Let me get my bearings. It was over here. We went out a couple nights and looked at it through the telescope. Beautiful if you've ever seen a comet. But it moved so much. Not like the stars, not like the planets, but you you had to find it because it's a wandering star. Or a meteorite that flashes and disappears. You can't base anything off of. You know, once again, you, you can sail off the stars. You can pick the time and date of the year off the stars. But you can't do that to a comet. 
If you can't do that to a meteorite, they're wandering stars that will give you no sense of direction. And that's the thing about false teachers. Oh, man, comets are fun to look at. Meteorites are a flash. They're beautiful. But you can't base anything off of them. That's the false teachers. They're very unique, but you can't set your course by them. And what's the result of them? Reserve the blackness of darkness forever. Blackness and darkness there. Please remember what hell is described at. Darkness. There is a spiritual judgment waiting for them because of the falseness of what they do and say. Be careful of the way of Cain works, not faith and evilness. Be careful of the error of Balaam, the greed. Be careful of the rebellion of Korah, discontentment, always wanting more. That's what you see with false teachers. Be careful of these love feasts that are spots, rocks that will wreck your ship, serving only themselves, clouds without water, bring no refreshment, dead fruit, raging, waving seas of destruction, and wandering stars. What a beautiful, poetic description of what false teaching is. We'll pick it up next week in 14, and what a fascinating passage that is about Enoch prophesying. And I'm looking forward to getting into that study as well. Any final questions, comments about anything here before we close up? All right, let's pray and we'll do a couple quick announcements. Lord, as we talk about um, false teaching, help us as always desire the truth, the truth of Jesus, the truth of the Word, the truth of the Holy Spirit. Let us not only talk about it, but live it. And Lord, I think of what it says in 1 John, let us test the spirits if there's that falseness out there to know, to see, to understand truth. And Lord, give us that discernment of the false teaching, Lord, in your name. Amen. A couple quick things as we close up. Uh, hey, New Order Daily Bread's back there. Once again, if you're watching at home and you want one sent to you, please let us know. And you can do that. Uh, teen groups started back up again with both boys and girls tonight, so I want to make sure everybody knows that. Uh, tomorrow, from 3 to 5, and Lynette's right there, and she can answer more questions. We mentioned this last Wednesday, last Sunday. I won't go into a lot of detail, but there's going to be the public reading of God's Word tomorrow at the Desert Park from 3 to 5. What a beautiful thing that is. Um, do you still need readers, Lynette? Are you all? If people... If people want to go read, she can explain to you what it is. But just keep it in prayer tomorrow from 3 to 5. This is going to be happening uh, in the different 88 counties. But there's going to be passages. that The entire Bible is going to be read across all 88 counties. Each county gets their own section here. And that's going to be from 3 to 5. And I think it's just absolutely wonderful. Old Testament, New Testament talks about the public reading of God's Word. It does not return void. If you want to get involved with that, come out and support it. It's going to be at the center park there in Dashville, the old park, uh, from 3 to 5. You can come out and read or just come out and be a part of that as well. And Lynette will point you in the right direction concerning that as well. Hey, child care started back up on Sundays and Wednesdays. If you have any questions about that, you can see Tony. Things are a little different with all the mandates going on. But it is back up and running and hopefully being blessed there by the Lord. I think that's uh, most everything. So, hey, you guys have a good week. God bless. We'll catch you Sunday, either uh, online or face-to-face, the next Wednesday as well. You guys have a good week, and God bless.